Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 70, another question and answer episode. How you doing, Jay? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. You know, Jay was uh, visited my studio and helped me set up the home assistant to make it better. I, I had been dragging my feet on it. So thank you, Jay, for that. And uh, it only encouraged me that at some point in time, we should probably do more home assistant stuff because man, does it have a happy place in the home lab. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and the capabilities i mean you just keep finding more the more you look at it more things that it can do that you didn't know it could do so it's like this it's like the gift that keeps on giving because it keeps on providing you with fun things to try out and i have yet to run into a wall any anywhere so it's great yeah it's it's really interesting because um i've now integrated you know everything from thermostat to more devices and a one click button that turns on my whole studio all the relays and lights for my studio and then on top of that i don't figure out and i just haven't dug into it very far i did figure out that it will connect to synology specifically synology surveillance station and i'm still working on what can be triggered from what happens in synology uh, surveillance station but either way now i have like one page where i can see everything it's just really neat they just keep adding more and more stuff to it and it's all runs on a raspberry pi it's like so you know low energy relatively low cost i know depending on when you're listening to this raspberry pis are well in short supply therefore at a higher cost right. but you know they'll come back to normal i hope at some point as the supply chain catches up until that time let's uh thank a sponsor of this episode and that is linode it is a great place to run many of the projects we talk about here on home lab and we're going to be talking about Linode a little bit today because one of the questions is about Linode and services and things we talk about on the show. And uh, our recommendation from Linode isn't just because they are paying us, as we say, they are a sponsor show, but because we actually like the product. And we're going to talk a little bit about that of just good companies to, you know, use services because, well, as much as this is a home lab show, we do have some external reliance on things and the occasional external need for things, which is why we have Linode as a sponsor. We have an offer code if you'd like to get started with them down in the links below. So Linode slash, uh, I think it's the home lab show. Click the link down in uh, in the description for that. And thank you for being a sponsor of Linode. Absolutely. And I just want to mention like Linode is, if nothing else, I mean, it's many things. It's great, but it's also the best DMZ. Like just put your public facing stuff in Linode and just, yeah. you know, your, your infrastructure, just keep it away from the public, but the things that need to be in reach of the public, just put it out there in their data center. So your data center is completely separate. Yep. All right. Uh, I guess I could jump on this first one and it's about the Intel NUC and a single drive running Proxmox, but should they set up ZFS on it? And my general answer is going to be no. Right. I mean, a single ZFS, right? It, great. ZFS is awesome. But the awesomeness of ZFS really comes into play when you have more than one drive. But yes, you can install ZFS on a single drive. Yes, it will work. And it's probably not, a, it's not any terrible idea. I don't see anything really bad coming from it. But is it going to really offer you any resiliency and redundancy? Well, those features like BitRot rely on having multiple copies and across multiple drives. So those best features and those big advantages you get of ZFS are limited when you do it. But to the right. other side, to play devil's advocate, uh, ZFS replication still works in single drive mode. So absolutely, there are some things that you still can take advantage of. So, you know, I don't, I don't usually go out of my way to set up ZFS on single drives, but I mean, you can. It comes down to personal opinion on it. Uh, you'd still have ZFS caching on there, so you're going to sacrifice uh, a 
some amount of RAM, which can be used to cache things on drive. So it's not, there's, there's another advantage you have towards it. I guess it just comes down to personal preference on there. Uh, I've never really had the personal preference when I'm setting up a single drive, even though it's becoming more available in Linux to build it all on ZFS. Generally, I do it for, you know, your RAID array installations, but if you want to go there, you want to do it, have at it, go ahead. Um, it's, it's not like you're, going to have a failing file system it does functionally work on single drive you just lose all those multi-drive advantages you get from it and i want to add to um something proxmox specific because obviously everything you said about zfs is true which is why you know before the show i'm like i, I think you might want to take this one because um i know zfs pretty well but but i mean you know it better uh that's just the way it is but Proxmox in ZFS has been very problematic for me. Now, I want everyone to take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt because the problem might be fixed. It might not exist, and maybe everything I'm saying right now is false, but it was true as of the time I last tried ZFS on Proxmox. I had a horrendous experience, and I, when I used it, I couldn't wait to get it off the system. I mean, around the same time as my Proxmox series came out, however long ago that was, which was at least a version ago, if not two, um, the issue for me was that it would tell me that I'm out of memory. Now I have, I want to say if I remember correctly, now 256 gigs of RAM, or at least at the time I had 128 gigs of RAM on each of those. It was ZFS, Proxmox would report um, that I have the majority of my memories free, like 80%, 75%. But then I go to start a VM and it says out of memory, but it shows I have a bunch of memory. How can I be out of memory if it says that I have memory? And then what I found out is that it's not reporting accurately how much memory you have, because it wasn't at least at that time taking into consideration how much memory ZFS is using. So what I was getting as far as the free memory amount was completely untrue. And it was wasting memory um, left and right I, I don't run a lot of VMs. I might have maybe at most five or six running on there at the time, about maybe at most four gigs of RAM on one of them and mostly one gig. And I'm like, really? I didn't even get a chance to use this yet. And it's already out of memory. Now, it could be completely fixed by now. I, I do plan on um, testing ZFS on Proxmox again, just to see what the current state is. But take that the grain of salt, you might run into issues, but if you have a great experience with ZFS and Proxmox, then absolutely let us know that too, because I want to know if you're having a good experience or if you're also just having the same problems that I alluded to, let us know in the feedback. But just uh, getting back to your point, Tom, yeah, I mean, you are losing some of the functionality, even if Proxmox is fantastic with ZFS. And at that point, the more features you lose, you have to ask yourself, is it still worth doing? Yeah. So that's um comes down to whether or not you have that experience. And I'm not really uh, using Proxmox and Jay's using Proxmox, but not with ZFS. So um, we can't really answer some of the other details. Right. Now, the next question we debated about answering because someone was complaining and I said, no, I want to double down on uh, right. this particular answer. And they someone starts out, says, hey, I've been listening to your podcast for a while. Well, I encourage you to keep uh, producing great content. I always learn something new. Thank you, my list of you guys. I have a couple of complaints to make. This is in regards to recommendations. Recently, I listened to an episode about owning your domains. As it turned out, you were wrong to recommend Hover. Now, that's the person's opinion. Uh, in fact, this is not a matter of personal opinion, but actual facts. Uh, in their actual facts are 
that Hover's not the cheapest place to buy a domain. There are other domain providers that they make a list of that they say, yeah, these places are cheaper. But I'm kind of going, okay. I, you know, I think we looked up a domain. It was $14 on $14.99 in Hover. And I grabbed Namecheap. I just grabbed one out of the air that I'd heard advertised before somewhere. And Namecheap was like $10, $9.99, I think. So, yes. Yep. factually there's a $4 price difference, but that doesn't mean I'm steering you in the wrong direction. I'm steering you towards, and me and Jay both agree on this, a company we've had a good overall customer experience with that. We've had good interactions. We find their dashboard easy to use. And we find the extra $4 a year that diff price difference in those uh, domain prices to be worth the better customer experience. Now we're just saying hover is a good place based on that, not based on, because we did not qualify it with the cheapest place to buy a domain is that would be a different thing. Cause if I said the cheapest place to buy a domain is going to be hover, I would then in fact be wrong. And the person would be correct. We just said a good place and what makes a good place versus a cheap place well, McDonald's is cheap, but there are places that are good. And I, I don't know. Don't want indigestion, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of variation to it. And once again, this was not sponsored or uh, even that particular old older video, uh, older podcast episode about buying and owning your own domain. None that was sponsored by Hover. We just shared our personal experience with them. I can tell right. you. I have definitely had a horrible customer experience with GoDaddy. They're an easy example of a bad customer experience. I haven't really dealt with too many other registrars. Network Solutions is obviously the one I've dealt with because I've been on the internet long enough to where they used to be the only one you could deal with. Right. And it took them forever to get 2FA properly set up. They were always a pain about that for, it seemed like a really long time, but I don't know anything bad to say about the registrars that cost less, but from a cost standpoint, $4 over a year is not a substantial cost point for somewhere. Right. I'll pay four extra dollars for a better customer experience. Now I'm not saying there's a bad customer experience at, you know, insert names like Namecheap, but I don't know. I haven't used them. So I have no point of reference. So when we steer you towards things, if we are saying it's the cheapest, we will probably offer some qualifying answers for that, but it's rarely that me and Jay are saying the cheapest. It's usually us just saying like, Hey, we've had a good experience with this. Hopefully you'll have a good experience as well. And Hover's integration and customer service has always been good. And I think that matters for a, a domain company. If you're doing, Oh, I don't know, setting up some glue records and you need someone to talk to, to help. Hey, Hover's been great. Cause we have a few times where we had to set up glue records, which have to be set up by your registrar or through their system. And maybe you don't know what glue records are. And that's a whole nother episode to dive into DNS record types and how the whole naming system works. That might be a fun episode. But that was our basis for it. Second part of this yep. email is claiming that AWS and Azure costs less than Linode. And I don't really find that to be uh, all that qualifying. Me and Jay have both, you know, from the business side, there may be those free, tier, free tiers that they offer and certain things that come and go. Uh, but from an overall cost uh, standpoint, um, Azure and AWS are not and nor do they claim to be the cheapest bottom of the barrel out there. Right. Uh, I think Linode's reasonably priced. And it's also confusing how they worded it because it sounds like they were claiming that your hosted zones, which I'm assuming they mean some type of domains, um, cost money and they don't. That's actually a free service of Linode and not just Linode. Many companies do this. So let you do your DNS management in there 
not as an upsell, but as a package with it. So Linode offers free DNS management with the accounts. So uh, I was just throwing that out there, you, you know, yeah. DNS management, not domain management. So they kind of conflated you, but I wanted to address the whole question. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add some things too. I want to um, also like really emphasize your point. Like we, well, I, I'm sure you haven't ever. Um, I'm pretty sure. I know I've never been sponsored by Hover. I've never had a conversation with them ever outside of, you know, calling support and asking for help on yeah. something. Um, but I've never like talked to their managers or no, no one's even contacted me at any point and asked me, you know, can we sponsor you? So the very fact that we're recommending something and we get nothing out of it, we get no kickback, no affiliate links, no money. We get literally zero from hover and we still recommend them says a lot now. Yes. To your point, and, and to our uh, listeners' point, um, it is the case that Hover is not the cheapest. But I like to think of content creation as the Kobayashi Maru, and Star Trek fans know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're going to lose. You can only lose. You just have to lose in the best way possible. So here's the scenario from a content creator's mindset. If we recommend the cheapest solution, we'll probably get complaints that Customer service can't help them. And believe me, people will absolutely me message you on Twitter. You know, that company that you recommended, they uh, I called customer service and they were not equipped to help me. And it was a horrible experience. Um, and that absolutely happens. So the extra money, and we're talking like a $4 difference here, in exchange for customer service, that is actually good. And I've called many of these providers and I've never had a good experience. Hover's the only one where I did. So that's why... I feel it's better to recommend something that people get a good experience from rather than the cheapest solution. And let's be honest here. I mean, you can't even buy lunch for $4 nowadays, US dollars. <laughs> and the other side of the coin is if you are running a home lab, then $4 is not a concern for you, period. I'm not going to hear otherwise. It's probably not because, the place you're spending the most money. <laughs> right, because you're increasing your energy costs, which is going to cost way more than the $4. Your, even if you buy a lot of secondhand used equipment, you're still spending a lot of money. There could be a license for some proprietary software you might be running if you run anything proprietary that you probably had no problem paying. $4 is not your problem. Um, so I feel like if it was like $50 for a domain, yeah, I'm not recommending that because at that point they're gouging everyone. But I think $4 extra in exchange for better customer service is reasonable. But then... Yeah. The second part of the question about AWS and Azure, there is no scenario where Linode is more expensive. I'm certified in AWS. Um, I've had many years experience working with it. And uh, on the, you know, at first it might seem that way because maybe the base VM cost could be cheaper. They do have a free tier, but it runs out, um, I think in one year, if I remember correctly. Um, so then you don't even have that. And then they're going to nickel and dime you to death for every little thing that they can. And when you get that bill, um, I mean, you could literally just forget to delete some uh, backup images one time and your bill goes crazy. But the other side of it is that comparing Linode to AWS and Azure, I often do it in my ads because that's um, what most people understand. But actually, AWS and Linode are two completely different tiers. AWS or Amazon has their light sale service which is their uh, DigitalOcean slash Linode equivalent. So that would be a more fair comparison, but comparing Linode's pricing to AWS, it's like um, comparing Proxmox license costs to buying VMware or something. I mean, yeah, they, they do the same thing, but they're really not the same. So I just wanted to 
point yeah. that out. So um, yeah, that's not that part of it's not true. Is hover more expensive? Yes, but four dollars extra a year, a year for, for a better customer service. I'll pay that. Yeah. And, it, and the person mentioned specifically a .com domain. That's why I brought up .com. Right. And there's more than just .com out there. There's all kinds of different uh, TLDs that you can go from now. So, yeah, there's a lot of options there. Mm -hmm. um, the next one, I'll just I'll mention it briefly. Uh, someone just thanked us for the learning they did um, because we suggested scripting a couple things. And it it's one of those things that I, I like hearing this feedback from people that said, hey, I thought it was really hard. You said, just run a script to do this thing. And this was back from ep episode uh, 62, which I don't have the title for that in the top of my head. But um, it's one of the, I just like hearing feedback. This person didn't have a question. They just let us know that they got it all working. And that's actually something that we really mm -hmm. love hearing me and Jay both too. Mm -hmm. When people say, Hey, I learned from your channel. I followed a couple of the tutorials in which we reference a lot of other YouTube tutorials uh, in these uh, podcast episodes. But yeah, that's ultimately what we want is to see that you learned something. I like getting tagged on Twitter. Tom, you really helped me understand this concept or, Hey, I couldn't figure out these firewall rules. Now I haven't figured out, or in this person's case, scripting, it seemed like a really impossible task. And I realized, Oh, wow, this is really easy after a small amount of time spent learning it. So uh, always big, always great to hear uh, from uh, people and their success stories. Yeah. I, I often still to this day, I mean, people might think, Oh yeah, you have everything all figured out. You're an expert. You're unfazed by anything. Um, None of that's true. Um, what I draw on and what you draw on is from experience, a long time of experience working with these things and um, fumbling our way through it and then finding out why it worked and then reproducing it to make sure we're right over and over again over however many years. Um, but I still get frustrated. I still look at a project that I might have like, wow, that's very complicated. And I might even get anxious still to this day. But then after I calm myself down and give it a shot, then I feel really good once I get it working. So that doesn't really change. Um, the feeling that you get when you get something working is awesome. But then the feeling we get when we teach people things is even better. Um, and let's be honest, I mean, there's so many different things that we could do if we wanted to be super wealthy. There's some, <laughs> you know, ways to, to, I mean, I could, I could have like five Teslas if I wanted to, uh, do, you know, <laughs> a line of work that I'm not interested in doing. Um, but I'm, but you know, I'm not complaining. It's fun. What, what I do, yeah. what we do is fun. We do it for helping people out. It feels really great to know that we're making that difference. And, um, when we hear that from people, we may not always read it, but we always appreciate that because that just justifies everything, right? Our entire existence is now justified because we help somebody out. And yeah. um, that's a very special thing. For sure. Um, the next one's a quick question that I have an answer mm -hmm. to. Could you cover self-hosted PaaS platform as a service like, uh, I think you pronounce it Daku and cap rover um i don't see this really as a home lab topic uh, maybe i'm wrong and maybe someone can explain it to me but i can imagine setting up platform as a service because you want to start a hosting company or something like that and offer services to developers but in home lab you're the developer you're the client so building a platform a self-service type of platform for platform as a service so you can self-serve it yourself didn't click as much as a home lab topic for me um Maybe I'm wrong if someone wants to send us some feedback to explain it better uh, because it just it didn't seem like it has a real strong fit in the home lab unless you're 
learning in your lab to start a hosting type company. Um, I don't know, kind of a kind of an odd fit. And me and Jay don't really use either of those tools. So we're also not experts in it. So we could right. possibly have a misunderstanding of it because it's not part of our uh, daily regimen of things we use as setting up platform as a service. So leave us some more feedback on that uh, so we can add some context. Yeah, absolutely. And and to your point, I mean, I'm, I think a big part of home lab is what your employer is asking you to learn because i know that definitely bleeds into it if you already work in it and maybe your employer read a white paper and um yeah we have to do serverless or whatever yeah. i mean that's fine i get it because that makes sense you, you take that into your home lab practice with it um it's in on your hardware it's more convenient um but the at the end of the day i would say the majority of the audience for home lab um, we run things ourselves, and when we we have a solution that takes servers out of the equation, that is an abstraction, that does bleed into home lab. But generally speaking, the people that like to self-host their own things are also not the same people that are trying to have a serverless environment. They're having servers installed. I know there's other use cases for it too. So, like Tom said, just let us know if there's an easier, like obvious use case for this in home lab, because I feel like there's going to be a few people that are very strongly in favor of us talking about this, but also keep in mind, we, uh, if only like five or six people or even just a hundred people like it, um, and the majority doesn't, then honestly, most people just won't be into it and it might not get a lot of traction in the audience. So there's also that. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of a niche thing. Also serverless isn't just like the cloud is actually someone else's data center that you hope is duct taped together better, better than yours and serverless isn't serverless. <laughs> yeah. what is the serverless, what's it running on? A potato? <laughs> it's running on potato? It's a video server. Wow. All right. Uh, looks like you have, um, what is it? Show 63 troubleshooting. Yep. Take that one, Jay. Sure. Um, so there's a couple of things listed here about some suggestions on things we should probably cover. Among them, Nmon, excuse me, Nmon, um, can't even talk today, apparently, LSOF and TCP dump. And, and absolutely, those things are within the scope of what we talk about. But also keep in mind that I do borrow ideas from this same list of feedback for my own YouTube channel. So um, how to say I'm doing a video on LSOF without saying I'm doing a video on LSOF <laughs> um, and, and maybe the others too. So um I, I took the feedback just to, to mention, yeah, I, I think those topics will at least be a great idea for the YouTube channel. Would they make an episode in and of themselves? Probably not, but we could also put them in with other uh, utilities. If we want to cover additional ones, then we could probably add these to the list. So um, yeah, the feedback has been received and we yeah. may even do something about it. Yeah, there's a, so many great utilities and different ways to implement them. And there's not a single true answer because, well, it, it just seems like this is the nature of open source and the Linux world where someone had a utility that did a thing and we covered a bunch of those in your utilities episode and troubleshooting. But then there's also someone else who goes, you know what? I, it doesn't do the one thing I need to let me build an almost similar tool that has most of the functionality, but also does that extra thing that you know, fits the use case. Uh, and there's no right or wrong answer. It kind of comes to how you want to come to the conclusion or how you're piping that output into something else to feed, you know, a different script, a different project you have going on. So uh, it, it offers me and Jay a lot of opportunity to cover a lot of different ways to uh, accomplish things. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I'll just plug a few things since I think it naturally goes in there. Like I can get a 
a recommendation to cover something and then you know maybe it'll happen right away maybe it's not a fit and i don't cover it or maybe it does happen and it takes years to get to it um but i always get to everything eventually and so i'll just make the announcement i'm going to be i'm actually in the final stages of creating an eGPU external gpu uh primer on the channel and the video is literally 90 something percent done and it might even show up this week even as soon as tomorrow or next week at the latest that'll tell you everything you wanted to know about external gpus and i'm pretty sure that came in as a recommendation at one point probably a youtube comment but you know i get to it eventually so um be on the lookout for that so and that was a probably most likely suggestion that came in from someone and it's going to turn into a video so it happens all right uh let's see i loved your i loved your recent episode on tailscale at one point do you recommend how tailscale gateway could be created so all nodes on the land could access the nodes on the other side of the tailscale would love to see a walkthrough i'm not really clear on what they're asking because i have several video tutorials already on tailscale but tailscale already does that um where all the nodes talk to each other that's the the default nature of tailscale is as you add nodes it bridges the connectivity to each of the other nodes also if you don't create any acl rules it allows all connectivity you have to restrict them if you need to uh, with acl rules like if you want to limit the way the devices talk to each other maybe they're referring to an exit node but that's also just a allow i, I covered this in pf sense because i thought pf sense makes an easy obvious answer for building an exit node uh you just check the box and when you check the box and i cover this in my pf sense tail scale video um that can become your exit node so your remote devices can then channel data out of that particular exit node it's all there's not much you have to do there's a check the box which adds the parameter saying, yes, I would like to uh, allow traffic to exit from this node. And then within the tailscale menu, it says, hey, this is wanting to be an exit node. And you can just say, yes, exit node that one. So it's pretty, really simple overall um, doing it with just the tailscale interface and with the um, PF sense. To go a step further, uh, I did cover the head scale video, which is a self-hosted control plane for tailscale. And you have a couple different parameters, but I actually cover them in that video uh, with Headscale of how to add those extra parameters to set an exit node. You have to just put it to the command line as a command line option to allow an exit node. And I believe it was a setting in Headscale. Both of those are covered in my Headscale video if you wanted to do it uh, manually like that. So uh, both those have been covered. Um, and uh, I think that should cover that uh, tail scale and all the fun things you can do with it in those videos. If I'm wrong or if there's a misunderstanding, you know, send out a question back to the home lab. We'll try to explain it further or hit me up in the forums or comment on the video and I'll do my best to answer the question for you. Yep. All right. Next one. Um, I, I'm going to bring this up because I haven't completely solved this. So if, if there's a podcast expert that would like to figure this out, I don't know if you're aware, but I can only view the last 10 episodes in Apple Podcasts. There are some bugs with Apple Podcasts with not just ours. I, I know this happens to a lot of the other podcasts I listen to. Um, Apple has this weird restriction thing where they keep only wanting to pull the last 10. And I'm really, it has something to do with how many kilobytes your, uh, according to the a couple of people I've talked to, but everyone see, thinks Apple's kind of a black box. Matter of fact, to register Apple podcasts, because I don't own an Apple device. 
even though I have an Apple account that I've used for other things, you can only register, and I had to have Jade do an Apple device, from a logged-in Apple device to actually register that you can list your stuff with Apple Podcasts. I don't know why yeah. Apple's the outlier on making it difficult. It's easy with all the other services that we registered with, like Spotify and everything else. So I'll just throw it out there. If someone knows the workaround and would like to let us know, I'm all ears. I'm uh, at my wit's end with dealing with Apple. Uh, but if someone knows that secret, cause you're just a, you're a podcast engineer and you're like, Tom, you're just missing this checkbox somewhere. Awesome. Let me know where that checkbox is. <laughs> so that's, you know that's the reason I love that question in here. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that to me, that question just really underscores the fact that we need volunteers because, you know, being in front of the camera obviously means like, I, I can't, you know, I can't multitask, even though I don't really feel there is a such a thing as multitasking when it comes to people. We just fake that to impress HR. But I um, mean, you especially can't do that if you're in front of the camera and you're recording. And then there's these little things like this. And it's not a little thing. I know it's a big problem, but then it's like, yeah, but we have to like stop recording and, and editing and go tackle that. It becomes kind of hard. But I when I was at scale, I caught up with some people from Tux Digital who, you know, they do some podcasts. I, I think a, a pretty big portion of our audience is probably going to know exactly who I'm talking about. And when I was there talking to them, they offered to, you know, help and, you know, collaborate and, and maybe give me some pointers because I was asking about their setup. So chances are there's people in our same community that's already tackled these problems. If Tux Digital can reach out to us and I'll probably reach out to them or anyone else for that matter that does this. Because honestly, when we produce a podcast, it's like, let's do the thing. And then we find problems. We fix problems. We find more problems. We fix those problems. And we realize one network isn't getting anything. So we figure out why that network is, isn't getting it. Why is the podcast not ending up over here? Let's go tackle that. Um, and podcast distribution really honestly becomes a pain because every place you can, you know, put your podcast on has different requirements. Yes. And it's a lot to keep up on. So, um, and this is just one example of that. We probably just need someone to help us out with it. So. Yeah, that's it is it is maddening. It's YouTube makes it a lot easier because it's one place. As much as I don't like some one single tech company being the single place, the other side of it is from a content creator's perspective, it's easy to have one place I post things to and uh, have my content easily discovered, easily accessed. Um, podcast, it you know, and we standardize do use an RSS feed and we do that and allow complete MP3 downloads directly from our site hosted with Linode. Um, because that way you can just pull our RSS feed and download things directly, which of course some people go, but that's less convenient. Um, there's tools out there for doing RSS aggregation with it. So you can, like I said, pull these yourself, but uh, we do our best to try to be all the places that people want to hear us um, too reasonable of how much time we'll spend <laughs> messing with each one of these. So yes. Like, sometimes <laughs> we're like, we have an hour. Let's see how many we can get um, in one hour. <laughs> and then we have to stop. And then we maybe donate another hour later on. It's kind of like uh, who wants to be the uh, podcast distribution expert for an hour. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Now, the next, was it one, two, three questions? Um, yep. Yeah, well, four. The next four questions, we're going to sum up into one, right, Jay? Because <laughs> it's all the, it's a varied way of asking the same thing. <laughs> I think so. Uh, are you referring to the NFS the Samba question? Um, or wait, did I miss the Samba one? No, it's in the same question, actually. Oh, okay. It's NFS slash SMB. So, um I just want to take a moment and just yes. make sure people know that I really am not impressed by 
the quality of file sharing technologies in Linux as of today. I mean, already SSHFS, which of course has a performance penalty, um, last I checked, which is about a month ago, um, the maintainer quit and I literally had to pull that entire section out of the book that I just wrote because I don't want to recommend something that has been abandoned. And I think, you know, maybe another maintainer will jump on. And then you have, uh, you have Samba, which is, uh, you know, started as a reverse engineered um, implementation of the SMB protocol. And, you know, that gives you access to Windows shares, mixed environments, but, you know, you might not get the best performance. Permissions are not going to uh, map exactly the same. Um, with NFS, it will map exactly the same, but then on Windows systems, you're going to need to install that plugin to get that to work. And even if you do, you're going to have issues with uh, file lock issues and stale mounts and everything. There isn't a solution in Linux that's good for this. We just kind of take what exists and we just try to make it work as best we can. So I say that to say this, you're always going to have issues with shares, that, that you're never going to be 100% problem free with that, but you can get close enough to that. Now, to answer the actual question, when it comes to auto-mounting, um, I don't really like the FSTAB method. Uh, in a video I just recorded, I created a video, and I'm giving all the spoilers away about what's coming on my channel um, in the next few months, but I did a whole video about um, setting up an NFS server, mounting the share on an NFS client, and then auto-mounting it um, at the end. So I, I felt like that this question is very timely because I'm editing that video. Um, Auto mounting, I like better. Um, when I say auto mounting, I'm not referring to the FS tab method. Yes, that is a way to auto mount. Um, I mean more like dynamic mounting is my preferred approach. And I'll give you an example of this. My um, Plex server uh, is, a, is a VM and it has maybe, I don't know, two or four cores. I can't remember what I gave it. And the disk is 16 gigabytes. And I said gigabytes. I wasn't like joking. It's literally gigabytes, not terabytes, gigabytes, 16 gigabytes because that VM only has the OS and Plex installed on it, but it mounts an NFS share on TrueNAS that has all of my movies on it. How does it do that? Well, the way it does it is it uses AutoFS, which is a method for, for dynamically mounting. The, the way that works, and, and the other solution I'll tell you about also works the same way. Um, it's not mounted until something goes to look for it. So if I have like slash MNT slash Plex, where all my movies are, that's an empty directory. There's nothing in there. But as soon as Plex looks at the at that folder and stats it in any kind of way, it's immediately mounted. And it's mounted so quickly that Plex never knows that folder was ever empty. To Plex, it's always there. The data's there. It doesn't have to re-index. So I have a disposable VM that mounts Plex. So if something happens, I don't care. Delete the VM, restore it from a backup because all my movies are somewhere else anyway. So there's no stateful data. I used AutoFS for that. So that's exactly what AutoFS does. It allows you to get a Samba or NFS mount. You don't have to put it in an FS tab. You can, but you don't have to. And it'll just make sure that it's mounted anytime something goes to look for it. And the beauty of this is that you're less likely going to run into file locking issues. You still could, but um, the person mentioned like, five minutes for shutdown or something, which is the classic uh, system D um, waiting on whatever to finish while it's, you know, shutting down that everybody hates, um, which you can adjust that timeout, by the way, to fix the problem that way within system D. But I also kind of feel like AutoFS will be a good fit. The alternative to AutoFS is using system D auto mount, which is built in. You don't have to install anything with AutoFS. You have to install it. But with system D auto mount, you have to have two service files for every one mount. You have a service 
file that identifies the mount. And then you have another service file that handles the auto mounting of that mount. And the end result's the same as the solution with AutoFS. It'll be mounted when you go to look for it. And I feel like that's the, the best way to do it, especially for home lab, at least until somebody, and I really hope somebody out there like comes up with another um, solution to compete with NFS and Samba that doesn't like completely suck. That's actually good um, because <laughs> we come out with so many amazing things. It's shocking to me that in my entire career, no one has come up with a, an answer, an alternative to these popular file sharing um, you know, protocols. And considering all the great things that the community has come out with, I'm very shocked that no one has done this. I know it's not an easy thing to do, but then again, um, building TailScale wasn't easy either. That wasn't done in a week. Uh, someone decided to do that with zero tier, same thing. Someone built that networking uh, situation there. Proxmox didn't uh, come into existence overnight either. These solutions take a while, but I really encourage anybody out there, if you want to tackle this problem, get some people together um, and, you know, just make this happen. We need it so bad. And if, uh, even if it's just like a new version of NFS or a completely different solution, please, somebody develop it. We need it. Yeah, I think it's because there's a um, in the Linux world, there's not any option to productize it. So zero tier and tail scale both have a productized you know, methodology to recoup all the money and development that went into them. Um, there's not much of a productized option when it comes to that. So I don't think there's enough drive to, um, what are we now? I know we were over just over 1% of the desktop market is Linux now. So, Well, it's yeah. getting higher now um, because that number I don't agree with because <laughs> the, the Steam's the Steam, um, if you if you run Steam, you might see this thing come up that asks you like to give them information about your system or whatever. And if that comes up, people could just say no. So then they're not counted. And I just started seeing that uh, come up in Steam for the first time like a couple of weeks ago, like in a video I just put out, you're the Linux desktop. I mentioned I've never actually seen it come up before. So I'm not counted in that 1% and none of my systems are. But right after I put out that video, strangely, I start seeing that come up in Steam like uh, I think three or four times in the last several days. But th that number is really hard to rationalize, especially considering a lot of Linux people, we really don't like other companies to know about us. We kind of want to just say, okay, companies, we don't really want to be measured. We don't want to be a part of that. We're on our own island. Leave us alone. Um, so there's a huge subset of Linux desktops that are not being counted. But but you are right. It is a smaller percentage. Yeah. And these are server-related things. And to correct myself, there is an alternative to NFS, kind of. Um, AWS has a solution that they've come up with, but it's in AWS. It's, it's as far as I know, not uh, public domain. So you can have that solution if you use AWS. And my understanding is they've worked through those issues that NFS has, but I don't know of something that exists easily for, um, you know, that could be used on anything. And I think that's kind of what we need. That being said, considering that servers have the majority of market share, Linux servers do, I feel like someone developing this technology would be huge for cloud. Absolutely huge for cloud. Well, and most of the clouds using a lot of object storage, so they kind of eliminate it because it's not using a shared right. storage in the same way that we address it. It's usually going to be, um, you know, S3 compatible, some type of object storage on there. So I, that's why I think there's. Yeah. But then again, maybe you know, uh, we look at more. Maybe there's an opportunity for more object-based storage and some way to make that work inside of Linux. So um, that yeah, could be interesting. 
Because there are S3 options in Linux, you know, you can use S3 connectors. And then if you just connect them to different object-based storage, but I don't know. Yeah, now we're going down a different rabbit hole. Yeah, it, it, it's that rabbit hole goes down very deep because it's never going to be exactly the same thing since those are like storage solutions. They generally like the one-to-one -one relationship, even if S3 style can be accessed by many things. Absolutely. But um, it, it's more of a one-to-one -one thing and it's not quite a file system layer. So applications that require a file system, we could trick it into thinking it is one, but some apps are smarter than others. And someone asked, you know, NFS and Samba work fine. Um, so what's the problem? And that's the thing for some people, they just don't have a problem because, um, you know, either they, they, um, don't notice something or they're not using a certain feature, but Samba, the permissions don't match one-to-one. -one. You could do directory masks and file masks that helps out a lot, um, but it's still not a one-to-one -one fit. And there's a performance penalty with it anyway, with NFS, it's everything's fine until it's not right. Everyone hmm. that doesn't have a problem, they continue to not have a problem and nobody, so you nobody has a problem until you do, amount. right? Um, but if that NFS connection gets disrupted at any point, um, go look at your VMs. There's going to be like a bunch of things in the logs. It doesn't handle that very well. It doesn't recover very well. File locking issues, stale mounts can completely hose a server and, and kill its performance. And again, you don't have a problem until you do. But then when you yeah. do, you'll see what I'm talking about. And that and maybe you'll join some kind of effort to maybe fix this. Yeah. So nonetheless, it's kind of a, a long-winded rant on there. Um, yeah. The next question is going to be about all, and this is where I said they're all the same question over and over. Um, everyone wanting us to do a ham radio episode. I get that there's a lot of crossover between the Linux world and ham radio. <clears throat> I don't know because neither me or Jay, and I, I have actually probably a little bit more experience with Jay because I have a few friends that are ham radio operators. I've actually been to um, some of the ham meetups that are in the area, but I wouldn't, not at all. And it's been so long since I've been to any of those type of events, call myself a, uh, even barely a ham enthusiast. I was enthusiastic about ham, but I never bothered to get my license. So if we find someone who wants to come on the show and be an expert on it, it might be a fun episode because I know there is definitely the crossover of Linux people and different software defined radio systems. That would probably be an interesting topic, but me and Jay know nothing about it. We don't use this. We don't do it as a hobby. So we're not qualified to do that as an episode. So while we think it's cool, we, we just have to find someone who's um, a ham radio operator that is a good speaker that would like to come on the show and uh, do an episode with us. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know anyone off the top of my head because me and Jay actually made the comment that the people we do know that are ham radio operators are not much for public speaking um, and would not want to be on a podcast or a YouTube video yep. or anything. So uh, not, not their forte. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And I'm very interested in this on a personal level too. I, I talked to an individual named Tim shout out if you're listening um, at scale and he was there with Arden. I, he was in a video I did um, the amateur radio um, emergency data network. It's, it's a mouthful, uh, which is just another example of uh, some problems that ham radio people solve because they do some pretty cool things. Um, what I've noticed is that there is the overlap. I think it's 50-50. I, I think every talk I've ever done, there's always a, a handful of ham radio people within the audience. So it's, it's definitely there. It's a 50-50 fit. But what I think is 100% of a fit for everybody, even if you don't care about ham radio, is how ham radio people solve their problems because the way that they solve their problems 
a lot of times can be used for non-ham radio things. For example, um, when I was talking to that same individual, he let me know that he was running Proxmox on a Raspberry Pi. And I'm like, wait, you must have misspoken. You didn't say Raspberry. No, I said Raspberry Pi. I'm like, how do you have a Proxmox cluster running on Raspberry Pi? It's not supported. Proxmox wants nothing to do with this because it's a you know a project, but that they don't really maintain. But yeah, someone in the ham, either someone in the ham radio space got that working and made it public domain, or they noticed that it was there and they you know used it for that. But that's something that could benefit other people too. So um, you know, Proxmox is used heavily. There's a lot of uh, Linux-related technologies. There's such a, a, a large amount of overlap. But to Tom's point, we have to know what we're talking about to talk about it. And unless somebody tutors me on um, ham radio, then that's probably not going to happen on my end. So we'll just need someone to come on. Um, I don't know if Tim will or if it's just someone else altogether, but it's like, you know, um, someone else will have to be the person because it can't be me because I don't know yep. enough. So. All right. I seen a couple questions that I don't mind answering that came up in the uh, live chat here. And one of them is going to be. Can you support secure network, i.e. Uh, your work network and your not-for-work network settings with a single 10-gig LAN on TrueNAS? Uh, this isn't that big of a deal because, yes, you can create multiple shares and you can have different permissions on those shares. For example, I can create a share that's uh, Tom's work stuff and make a user called Tom work and then only apply the share permissions to Tom work. Then I create another one, uh, Tom's silly stuff, and then I have another user which has a different login and that user only has work uh, has access to Tom silly stuff. Both those shares can exist bound to the same network interface. Authenticating to one share does not give you permission to the other because the user you authenticate with will determine where that goes. Uh, any thoughts on setup for Plex photos and confidential files? And it's kind of just the extended uh, question that, yeah, you can completely set that up. You can set up on your system, a login profile that logs into your work stuff. Then you log out, or maybe it's a two separate computers to keep clear separation. And the other computer you log in with the credentials that allow you to access those secure things. And they both can be bound and be on the same network. Uh, the way Samba works in TrueNAS or even Windows for that matter, the way file sharing works is you get the permissions based on the username and passwords you send. So if you send the username and password and then you've got those user permissions and ACLs applied in TrueNAS appropriately, then you will only get access to the things that you have permission to. So yes, that can absolutely work. Yep. Um, let's see. Yep. Looking to... Um, talk about <laughs> surprise. So people are being surprised that someone would like to talk on ham radio, but doesn't like to talk in person. You clearly have not been to a ham radio meetup. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they, they seem camera shy to me, but they're not necessarily shy about yeah. speaking. It's just, I mean, if we, in, I feel like some of them would say, yeah, can I have the camera off? I, 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 that's a generalization. I'm sorry, but um, I've also spoken to people who are not camera shy, but I also get it because I'm also camera shy, but I do it all the time. Well, how does that make sense, right? But some people can push themselves and other people can't. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, someone also mentioned, I'll, I'll throw it. I haven't used it, but I've heard a few people mention it. Maybe sometime if I have the time, I'll dig into it. Uh, NetMaker is an open source self-hosted tailscale zero tier alternative. It's a little different than that of how NetMaker works, but it's a cool project. Um, it's not one I've dove into, but I've heard a few people mention and talk about it. I don't know anything bad about it. Don't know anything good other than what commenters have said about it. So it looks pretty neat uh, if you want to check that one out. Um, Zen Armor 
is a option. I believe it's made by Sunny Valley Networks, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Zen Arbor is an option for PF Sense to add some uh, filtering. I've looked at it. I don't really feel, and I don't like modifying my PF Sense from, you know, by adding third-party packages into it um, until they've gone through some rigorous testing. And so I don't really have an interest in testing that. I think you can use it with OpenSense. So if you wanted to test out how well that plugin worked, I'm pretty sure they have an option for OpenSense. I don't know what you get uh, for the free tier, but I think they have a free and paid tier of that. So um, it's something neat to to play around with. Mm -hmm. And what was the other? There's one more question rolling up on there. I think that was that was most of them there. So um, looks that way. Have we discussed harvester versus rancher? I don't think we've de dove into those. But and I seen someone else ask about Kubernetes. Techno Tim has a great channel dedicated to those topics uh, mm -hmm. with a lot of focus and a lot of tutorials on them. So that's um, definitely a, a good channel to dive into on there. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, yeah, I, I also second that because that channel is freaking awesome. But in addition to that, I am also editing a Kubernetes video where uh, Proxmox is going to be what I what I set up the cluster on. So it's literally going to be another Proxmox video, Proxmox Kubernetes. I don't know what I'm going to call it yet. That's in the editing queue as well. So if anyone's interested, that's not going to help you with the rancher thing. Um, sometimes I feel like I do things manually to a fault. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that because you learn more, but sometimes people might want to use something like that. And, and that's something I should probably cover as well. But in the meantime, check out uh, Techno Tim's channel for sure and the content that he has, which will uh, keep you going until I have something of my own. And, and his is probably going to be better anyway. Who knows? But um, either way, the community has your back. We have content. So uh, we will uh, continue to make content. So uh, continue to digest it. And yeah. Yeah, I love someone posted. I said before there before there were hackers, there were hams. Yes, the ham radio people are definitely of the same culture. <laughs> I love their passion too. I mean, they just really love what they do and they make a difference. And you know, we were talking, wasn't it yesterday, about how they help the community and they get involved when uh, they're needed. This like I've been training for this, and then working with law enforcement and everything is just so fun. Yeah, there's some really, you know, I, I have some friends that are into it. They um definitely, you know, my, one of my first introductions in some of the ham stuff was a uh, one of my friends in the 90s that had his, I believe it's called Slow Scan TV license. It was the ability to do broadcast TV over ham radio. So really, really cool. Mm -hmm. um, someone says, curious of our perspective, uh, Harvester. And because me, me and Jay don't use Harvester or Rancher, as we said, doing things manually, um, just like Jay said, doing things manually is where we dive the most on learning. So because we're not using a lot of these automation tools, we don't have a lot of opinions on them. <laughs> yeah, not only that, what's really challenging is that um, the best way to produce content that I've found is you start at the beginner level. And then when you do an advanced video, maybe covering, you know, one of those solutions, you could always say, you know, I have an, another way of doing it or a um, entry level video to check out first. And I, it allows me to skip repeating the things. But then it's like, uh, you know, there's no limit to how many things at the beginner level you can cover. Um, you know, it is time for me to go after this Proxmox Kubernetes videos, Kubernetes video is done to go back around and then talk about the more advanced ways and the alternative ways, um, you know, separate from Kubernetes 
to kind of make that come full circle. Um, and sometimes I have to remind myself, like, yeah, if I keep doing videos on beginner stuff, um, and, and that's why lately I've been doing a lot more deep dive videos like the eGPU one, for example. So I think that's going to happen on the channel. I just don't know when. I, I know I'll cover it at least. I don't know about you, but but uh, I just can't tell you when it's going to be. But it's on the radar for sure. Yeah. And like you said at the beginning, there's probably some opportunities for us to cover some more of the uh, IoT and sensor devices. As you know, I'm slowly learning more about them, and Jay has a few of them out there. Uh, there's a lot. Like right now in front of me is one of these air gradient uh, devices, and it's I want to get neat. one of those for sure. Yeah, it's, it's uh, if you look up Jeff Gearling, son a video on it and a big DIY of how to even import the data. He has a whole GitHub on how to get the data from Air Gradient to Grafana. And it's kind of a DIY kit where you put some sensors together and a pretty simple Arduino setup. Uh, you program it, get it set up on your network uh, over Wi-Fi, and it will measure things like how many parts per particles per million. It will measure CO2 levels, um, and then you can track that over time. So if you type in like Jeff Gearling air quality, he's got a whole breakdown video from a year ago on it. And I've got one now because I'm doing some testing with it myself. So there's a, there's a lot of fun things that I think are really aligned with the home lab. Um, and this one's aligned both with home lab and quality of life. Um, when mm -hmm. I started the podcast, because there's a door behind me and I closed it, the CO2 levels were hovering right around 500. Right now, an hour into the podcast, they're now at 800. So by closing off uh, the doors, I've now increased um, the amount of CO2 in this room because it's the air conditioning hasn't kicked on in my house because there's not a reason to. It's pretty cool outside. So there's no extra circulation going on. So th these are, you know, things that might be interesting to people. Uh, Jeff covers that well in his topic, talking about the CO2 levels reaching uh, not dangerous, but certainly higher levels in his studio where he records. So uh, I think it's going to be a fun topic that me and Jay will wander into because it directly relates to home lab. And of course can be expanded out to uh, if you run places where industrial sensors are, they work a lot of on the same principles. Yeah. I want to check that out. Another thing on my radar too is um, implementing power monitoring, which I've already done, but there's one thing I haven't implemented that on. And, and that's the actual, you know, box, the actual, um, why am I blanking on the name of that, that box? Anyway, the, the circuits. So there's a way to hook into that and, and, and see monitor, you know, monitor power usage by circuit as well, which I also want to do. Um, yes. And Jeff's coverage is at jeffgearling.com slash tags slash CO2. Um, as of the time we're recording, it's um, the oh yeah, you know most recent video on that. But you know, if it comes out with another one, it might with the same tag, it might change. But it, there's just so many really cool things you could do with Home Lab, and and these are things that you might not really think about it otherwise. But these are important things. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we've ran through all the questions. Uh, if you go to thehomelab.show slash feedback, that's where you can fill out questions, excuse me, fill out questions uh, that goes to our form. So we love hearing from you. And if it's just say, hey, I got something working, suggestions for shows, questions we can answer on these Q&A episodes that we do about once a month right now, depending on how many questions come in. And uh, we yep. love, like I said, love hearing all the feedback one way or another, uh, good, bad, or telling us that $4 more means hovers a bad service. Hey, you know, we're willing to address them. We're not trying to hide from anyone. <laughs> but $4 fewer in your pocket also means $4 fewer for like a crummy fast food restaurant that's just going to give you indigestion anyway. So we might even be doing you a favor. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, always, we don't mind being called on our stuff. If we're wrong about something, let us know. That's always a fun feedback thing. (laughs) Until then, until next time, thank you everyone for joining. Awesome hearing from all of you and looking forward to the next episode, which uh, teaser, I'm pretty sure the next one might be a retro uh, one. We're we're trying to get that together. If we can get it pulled off, that'll be next week because we're going to have some fun diving into retro home labs when we're talking Commodores and TRS 80s and all all kinds of fun stuff. I cannot wait for this one. I know. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to be able to join that one. We're going to have a special guest for it. So that's what's in the works to give you guys uh, what's going on next. So thanks everyone for joining and see you next time. See you later.